He's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the perfect judge, the perfect defender, and our perfect savior. You're listening to In Spirit and Truth with Madison Sanderson. Grab your Bible, a cup of coffee, and let's celebrate him. Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Spirit and Truth. I am terribly sorry that it has been uh, two weeks, actually a little over two weeks since I have posted an episode. It's just been crazy. As I stated in my last episode, we had some big things coming up that I was not privy to announce just yet. And I have had many people asking if it was a baby announcement and it is not. So sorry to disappoint in that area. But uh, it was the fact that my husband and I got a great opportunity and we were able to move. And so we've been spending the last, it seems like forever, but definitely the last three weeks getting our home ready to rent and then moving into now our new home, which is actually currently where I'm recording, which is great. Uh, but this opportunity allowed both my husband and I to be able to quit our full-time jobs and to kind of focus more on our ministry and on our family and then on building our own business which is incredible so that is kind of what took over my life it feels like for the last couple of weeks and I feel like I'm finally kind of coming out of um, this just fog (laughs) and there was many other things that happened within those couple of weeks that made it even harder whether it was sickness or my husband um, cutting his knee open while he was at work and having to go to the hospital and uh, just many other things so We are finally back and things are kind of slowing down. And so I have an episode that I have been working tirelessly on as well because obviously we had a lot going on, but I had read an article um, probably the day after I recorded my last episode and it has just stuck with me from then. And I knew that I wanted to do this episode on this. Um, It's basically going to be covering the resurrection of Jesus. Because as we just came out of Easter just a couple weeks ago, uh, it's still prevalent. And the fact that Jesus not only lived a sinless life, but then also died a gruesome, horrendous, awful, terrible death that we could never possibly even fathom. And then not only that, but after he's died, he was raised from the dead because God said that he obviously was bigger than death and Jesus is. He's greater than death. He is able to defeat death and he did defeat death. And he said all throughout the Old Testament and through um, just the gospels, whenever Jesus was actually walking on earth and doing his human ministry, that he was going to overcome death. And so that's kind of what we're going to be covering today. And you're probably thinking, well, I know this, I don't really care, you know, blah, blah, blah. You might have the same viewpoint as the lady whose article I'm going to be reading, but I would definitely recommend you listening to this because I've stated multiple times that our country and just our world in general is so far off the mark whenever it comes to what it looks like to be living biblically. And the way that Christians are living nowadays is so insane. That's like the nice way of explaining what they do. I don't have enough time because we're going to be covering a lot 
today. I'm going to try and fit it all into an hour. So, you know, good luck. We may end up having to break this up into multiple episodes. But the fact that somebody would even think these sort of things is proof that we're we're in such a mess and we as true believers need to know where to um basically what tools we need to have on our tool belt which is obviously always the word but where do we need to be hitting people whenever it comes to defending our faith, but not only just defending our faith, but also just defending the fact that Jesus told us to live a certain way and they are proclaiming that it's a Christian way or a Christian manner and it's not. So anyways, I could go on a huge long rant about that. And like I said, I don't really have the time. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be reading through a, um, it's basically a question and answer that happened between a journalist whose name is Nicholas Kristoff and then um, a woman whose name is Serene Jones. She is a, um, she's an author of a new memoir called Call It Grace, which personally I have not read and personally I don't care to because I looked at the reviews and all the reviews and the praise for this book are all from secular people and never once do any of them mention any person of the Trinity. So for me, I don't care, just to be super blunt. Um, So she's an author, but she's also a Protestant minister, whatever that might look like for her. I don't know, personally, never listened to any of her messages. So also professing, to you guys that this is all coming based off of this one article. It's not coming off of me doing tons and tons and tons of research on what she says on her daily life or anything like that. And like I said, I've never read her book and I've never listened to any of her messages if she has any. Um, But she's also the president of Union Theological Seminary. So for me... I'm going to probably hold you to a pretty high standard if you're going to be the president of a seminary. And not just any seminary, but a theological seminary, which is what we are striving to do, is to have a systematic theology whenever it comes to our Bible and when it comes to our life and how how do we interpret Scripture that is fully Jesus and fully God and takes ourselves out of it, and then how do we then go throughout the world and profess the gospel. Basically, so if you're going to be a uh, president of a seminary, then I'm going to I'm going to have you on a pretty high, pretty high uh, standard. And she has missed the mark and not just by that much, but she's missed the mark by a landslide. So without further ado, I'm going to be going back and forth and trying to make this as easy as possible for you to understand when it is um Christoph speaking, when it's Jones speaking, or when it's just me and my personal opinion. So first off, Christoph asks, or says, to start, do you think of Easter as a literal flesh and blood resurrection? For myself, I think that that's just kind of a ridiculous question, because yes, of course I do. So then Jones says, when you look in the Gospels, the stories are all over the place. One, let me just put out there, that's rude because it's written by four different people from four different perspectives and by four different styles. So they're not all over the place. They actually coincide perfectly with each other. If you go and you lay them over one another and you actually do the biblical background check of where are each of these people coming from, who are they specifically writing to as well, and what are their different styles. So there's that. So she says, there's no resurrection story in Mark, just an empty tomb. So many people 
obviously, like I did, was like, well, have you ever read chapter 16 of Mark, which literally says the resurrection. That is its title. She's probably referring to the fact that the first couple of verses in Mark were were there when he wrote it. And then there were some that were added in for the last part of that chapter. And it is the Jesus going about and actually presenting himself to people after the resurrection. Those were not in the original text. Those were added in later, but that does not make them any less biblical because if it is in scripture, then it is biblical. It is the canonized version and it is what God wanted in there. So, she cannot say that there was just an empty tomb. And whether or not there was just an empty tomb in Mark doesn't matter because the fact that in Luke 24, in Matthew 28, and in John 20, they each and all profess that Jesus was resurrected and then he went about his ministry. The other three gospels all explain that it was not just an empty tomb. So, she's picking and choosing. She's cherry picking or she's buffet styling the gospels and that is a slap to the face to God and that is repulsive. So anyway, she says those who claim to know whether or not it happened are kidding themselves. What? You we're kidding ourselves? Okay, I want you to buckle up for just a second. I need you to put on your Bible seatbelt because we are going to be going through quite a few passages real quick because I'm going to prove to you yet again through scripture that what she's saying is false. Because as I've said time and time again, please take everything to scripture. I don't care if it makes you feel uncomfortable, if it makes your point unvalid, because the thing is, is you could be wrong. And that is okay because scripture is always right. So we are going to prove that she is clearly wrong by going through many, many different verses. Okay, so buckle up with me. These are going to be read pretty quickly because, again, I'm on a very tight time schedule. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was carried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas then to the 12 then he appeared to James then to all the apostles last of all as to one untimely born he appeared also to me so 1 Corinthians 15 12 through 21 now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead but if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised and if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are We are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Romans 1, 3 through 4. Concerning his son, who has who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 2, 8. 
Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Colossians 2, 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Romans 6, 3 through 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's just a few examples of where we proclaim to know whether or not it happened because it did happen. It mentions multiple times in specific ways that, yes, Jesus was resurrected. So she does say, but that empty tomb symbolizes that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed. Okay, I do like that. Jesus was crucified and he was killed, but it did not stop there. And so that's definitely something that I'm like, okay, I'll give you a partial amen on that, but not a full one because you're still taking it out of context. So she says, for me, it's a, it's impossible to tell the story of Easter without also telling the story of the cross. Yeah, exactly. Because Easter is literally Jesus dying on a cross and then being resurrected. So, I don't understand what she's saying there. So then Christoph says, But without a physical resurrection, isn't there a risk that we are left with just the crucifixion? Meaning, just left with Jesus' dying on the cross. So she says, Crucifixion is not something that God is orchestrating from upstairs. False, because God is over all. As it says in John 3, 16 through 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that he might make, might, uh, that the world might be saved through him. And then in 1 John 4, 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Those are pretty much the same thing. They're obviously written by the same person, but they are expressing that God did send his son, that God did allow crucifixion to happen, that God did orchestrate it because little to Miss Jones's world in her mind obviously little to to that she knows god is in control of every single little living thing everything he created everything how could he not be over it he didn't just create it and then say you guys have at it and let the world go on its way no he's involved in everything so then she goes on and this part just i mean it just gets worse and worse as we go you'll see and obviously I don't handle it well, but uh, she says the pervasive idea of an abusive Godfather who sends his own kid to the cross so God could forgive people is nuts. For me, the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. But what happens on Easter is the triumph of love in the midst of suffering. Isn't that reason for hope? So for one, the fact that she would ever view God as an abusive godfather who sends his own kid, which whenever you put it in that perspective, it's, it definitely 
to me, I take that almost personally of how dare you speak of my savior in such a manner. Jesus was not just a kid. He's a savior. He was a baby born in a manger, but that didn't make him any less a savior. That didn't make him any less a king. Yet she's viewing him as just a poor, pathetic kid. I actually would not be surprised if she viewed Jesus as only man when he was on the earth instead of fully God, fully man, because that's a thing that's going around and that would not be, that would not shock me whatsoever. So, um, God specifically states straight from, it starts all the way in Genesis, all the way through the entire gospels and all the way through the new Testament that, uh, he did send his quote unquote kid to the cross so that he could forgive people. We're not nuts for that. How else are we supposed to do this? Do we earn that? Is there something that, are we supposed to take certain steps that she's somehow interpreting from scripture, um, which scripture doesn't say. Scripture says that we must have Christ to actually come to the father. I don't know. Maybe. But for the fact that she says the cross is an enactment of our human hatred. Well, let's also put out the fact that God uses sin for good. He does allow for sin to happen. We hate to admit we hate to admit that and we don't like to think that God could ever be uh quote unquote cruel, but he's not cruel. He's sovereign. There's a complete difference in that. God can allow really 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 bad things to happen. But he is always glorified. Good is always brought from it. So Nothing in scripture could ever amount to what Jesus had to go through on the cross. I'm just putting that out there. So I'm going to use other examples from scripture, but it does not compare to what Jesus had to go through. But I do want you to remember that this is showing that God can and does allow for bad and terrible things to happen. But then think about the outcome because you have examples of like Job who had to go through awful, horrendous, terrible things that hopefully none of us ever have to go through even a glimpse of what he had to go through, but it was for God's glory. And then you have Noah, which he himself did not necessarily have to go through terrible things, but the other, everybody else, all of creation did. They had to literally die because God flooded the world. So that doesn't mean that it's just a story of a man on a boat. No, what it means was that there was a man who God selected to be put on an ark, to build an ark, to make a boat to help save humanity, which is a glimpse of what Jesus did. God sent his son to come to a dead world and to die on a cross so that we could then have a relationship with him so we could have a new life so yes god does allow bad things to happen so then somehow christoph the uh the the uh guy who's actually doing this interview says you allude to child abuse be okay so how do we reconcile an omnipotent, which means able to do anything, or an omniscient, knowing everything, God with evil and suffering? 
I have so much I could say that, but I'm going to just give you her answer. So then Joan says, at the heart of faith is mystery. God is beyond our knowing, not a being or an essence or an object. Okay, but I don't worship an all-powerful, all-controlling, omnipotent, omniscient being. That is a fabrication of Roman judicial theory and Greek mythology. Okay, so let me just put out there. A lot of people like to linger on the word mystery whenever it comes to faith, whenever it comes to having a relationship with God, whatever, whenever it comes to how do we live biblically, we all say that there's a sense of mystery because it's mentioned multiple times, especially in Paul's letters. So in a lot of New Testament, it is mentioned as mystery. But what the mystery was, was the fact that for all of the Old Testament, people were being told by God himself, but also through his believers, that there was a coming Messiah. So there was a sense of mystery as to when it was going to come, what he was going to be like, what it was going to look like for them. And then when he did come and he did live a perfect sinless life and he did die a gruesome death and he was resurrected, then there was this new level of mystery as to how in the world did that happen? And how does that save us? Because we're humans with finite minds. We just don't understand that sort of stuff. And it has to be explained to us usually over and over and over again. And we have to also be willing to lay down our pride so that we can accept such a thing. So that's when they use uh, at the heart of faith is mystery. Okay, false. That's kind of true, but not true because God's right there in scripture and he's also all around you i don't know if you've looked at your window recently but nature is pretty is pretty excited about who god is it proclaims it quite a bit so just also saying that um so to say that she does not worship an all-powerful all-controlling omnipotent omniscient being and that's just a fabrication well i'm just saying that i i do worship an all-powerful all-controlling being I do because I understand who God is. And again, I'm going to go back and forth all the time through the fact that he is sovereign. He's sovereign. He is sovereign. He is sovereign. He is over all things. He is all powerful. Who else could have created such a unique world and such a beautiful creation? While we may be messed up, we are a beautiful creation because we are image bearers of God. And not only that, but if you take your body apart and you look at each individual molecule, the fact that they have to work together in such a perfect manner just for you to survive and just for you to exist is incredible. So if that's not powerful enough, let's also just talk about the fact that God can literally control anything. He can bring a tsunami if he wants to. He could literally make the world stop spinning. We do not have that control. So yeah, he is an all-powerful, all-controlling being. He is able to do anything and he does know everything. Real quick, just to kind of help you to also understand who exactly my God is, I want you to listen to just a short video that is um, called That's My King by Dr. S.M. Lockridge. This was from many, many years ago, but he understood exactly, exactly who Jesus was.
And that's something that Jones is clearly missing and she doesn't understand. And that's something that I want you to, I want you to listen to this and get it. That God isn't just this, as, uh, as Phil Johnson says, he's not this Gumby action figure that we're able to contort and make into whatever we want, but this is who he is. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen.
So just to talk about this, we're going to go through Job 12, 7 through 10, and then I'm going to also read quite a bit more from Job because it's going to express the fact of who our God is. And then I'm going to finish with what she says that she believes God is. But ask the beasts and they will teach you, the birds of the heavens and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Well, obviously Jones. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. So now we're going to read 13, 13 through 25. So if you want to actually get out your Bible and read Job 12, 13 through 25 with me, that'd be great. Um, this is just, again, proving to you who our God is through scripture, because it clearly states it. And I can obviously tell you that Jones has never read the Bible. And if she has, it's been a very, very brief message. And it probably was a version like the Passion Version, which actually does not include most of this stuff. So 13 through 25 says, With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped. And judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in the trackless waste. They grope in the dark without lights, and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. That's only part of what he does. That's just, that's just showing that he is in charge of every person and of every single thing. So where she comes up with this, I have no idea. So she says that this God that I just said is not the God of Easter. Which, I mean, okay, <laughs> to be mythologically correct, she is accurate because the, actually, the goddess of Easter, Easter comes from the name, I can't remember her name, but she is the goddess of spring, and she brings forth new blooms, new blossoms, things like that, and that's where we get the name Easter from. So technically, yes, the pagan version of Easter is not of our God, but our God is the God over Resurrection Sunday, which is what Easter is tied into. So she says the God of Easter is vulnerable and is connected to the world in profound ways that don't involve manipulating the world, but constantly inviting us into love, justice, and mercy. All right, so she's sort of correct on the love, justice, and mercy bit. I will put that out there because God is a God of love, justice, and mercy. But he is not vulnerable. He does not need people. He's not sitting around twiddling his thumbs, pining after you. He's not vulnerable. 
Why you would ever sit there and believe that God is such a needy person and needy being is beyond me. He did not create us because he needed us because he was vulnerable and he was just waiting for somebody to come to him and just tell him that they love him so much. No, we tell him that because he deserves it, not because he needs it. He does not need our praise. How long did he exist before us without our praise? Jones, could you please answer that for me? So the fact that she'd even say that, again, with many other things that she says, is repulsive. And I'm just saying, we're only through half a page of her whole thing. I still have another page and a half, so we're going to have to get going. But anyways, um, so the only thing that I would say is that using the term vulnerable, I hate that word, but it is sort of proof that Jesus was also a man. He did come to the he did come to earth and he did have to go through things that we have to deal with every day and it does create us as more vulnerable creatures, but he was also fully God. So he was not he was not just this uh, he was not just this pile of mush on the ground just waiting for something to happen. He was more than that. So it goes on. Isn't a Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? When the message is about love, that's less religion, more philosophy, says Christoph. So then Jones says, for me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than that they put Jesus in the tomb and three days later he wasn't there. What? Okay, gouge my eyes out. So Jones says, for Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow someone found the body of Jesus still in the tomb? Would that then mean that Christianity was a lie? No. Faith is stronger than that. Okay, well, here's my take on all this. I don't understand how you could put that entire paragraph together. Because I don't understand how you can say faith is stronger than that. But the thing you're actually supposed to be having your faith in to you doesn't even exist. So what is your faith in? I don't, I, I don't get it. And it's not that we have some sort of obsession about the physical resurrection. It's the fact that we read scripture and scripture tells us over and over and over again that Jesus was physically resurrected. What does that mean? That means that while Jesus physically died a death, he also defeated death physically it was not just he died so that he could cover our sins and that was it no he was making a statement he was showing that he is stronger and bigger than death and that we who are his children have defeated death because we as his children are not going to be facing the same kind of death as those who do not know him we are not going to be spending eternity in darkness We get to have an eternity spent in heaven worshiping our king who did send his son and who did die on a cross for us. So while I do understand that Easter is 
a message that love is stronger than life or death. Yes, in a way. But what kind of love is she talking about? Because my love to my husband is not stronger than life or death. My love towards my parents, my love towards my stepdaughter is not that. It is a human love. And it is full of all my insecurities. It's full of all of my inadequacies. It's also full of my pride and of my selfishness. But the love that God has for us is not that. It is stronger than life or death. Yes, but that is the only love. And so the fact that she would even start saying that it really doesn't have to do with any of that, it only has to do with our kind of love, is, again repulsive so oh I could go on forever but I'm really running out of time so um there's more she actually goes into a little bit talking about how Mary is like why in the world would they even include that in scripture because it has nothing to do with it so uh go and read that because that's actually what this one's talking or kind of um named after this whole article is named after that she calls it a bizarre claim which i think is also repulsive so then it goes on and christoph says so what happens when we die okay so she says i don't know again that's a shocker considering the fact that she is the president of union theological seminary So if you don't know what happens after we die, then I don't think you've actually been reading scripture. And if that's the case, you probably should not be leading anything that is biblical, especially not a seminary where you train people to then go out and start preaching the gospel and start preaching the word to people if they don't even have any sort of clue what that even is. So she says, there may be something, there may be nothing. My faith is not tied to some divine promise about the afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, that's a faith driven by a selfish motive. Quote, unquote, I am going to be good so God would reward me with a stick of candy called heaven. She says, for me, living a life of love is driven by the simple fact that love is true. And I'm absolutely certain that when we die, there is not a group of designated bad people sent to burn in hell. That does not exist. But hell has a symbolic reality. When we reject love, we create hell. And hell is what we see around us in this world today in so many forms. This is one of those moments where I just want to like run my head into a wall multiple times just to try and forget that she ever said something like this. What? I'm going to read off. I'm not going to be able to read all these verses because I'm running out of time, but I'm going to give you the references and I highly recommend for you to go and read these. And I'm going to have them in my uh, show notes. So if you don't have your own Bible with you, one, do, but two, actually read these so you can get the context of it. Revelations 21, 8, Matthew 25, 46, Psalms 9, 17, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, Matthew 13, 50, Mark 9, 43, Jude 1, 7. Those are just a few examples where it explicitly says in Scripture, in Old Testament and New Testament, that hell does exist. That hell is a thing. And then if you go and you read any of the gospel, or if you read, actually, if you read any of Paul's letters, it's going to explicitly tell you that there are a designated group of bad people that are sent to burn in hell. It says that. 
And you know who those people are? It's not people that choose not to love other people. It's people who choose not to love God. It's for people who say that you're not enough. So then, Christoph says, For someone like myself, who is drawn to Jesus' teaching, to Jesus' teaching, but doesn't believe in the virgin birth or the physical resurrection, what am I? Am I a Christian? Which, let's just also put out there that um, this is exactly what she is proclaiming, that she does not believe in the virgin birth or the physical resurrection. So then, Joan says, well, you sound an awful lot like me. Well, there it is. And I'm a Christian minister. Okay, she might be a Christian minister, but she's definitely not a biblical minister. So, guys, I cannot stress enough your need to make sure that what you are listening to, who you are following, who you are allowing to speak, quote-unquote, life into your life is biblical. Please, 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 please take every single thing that you possibly can to Scripture. This literally is life or death for you. And I cannot express that more. I cannot stress this more. It is so important. And a lot of times we're so lazy and we don't want to do it. And I've been there and I've done that. And there are days when I still do that. I still just want to take what they're saying and just be like, okay, that's enough. That's fine. I don't want to have to take this description. I don't want to have to study it. But the thing is, is look how far off the mark she is. And she is a Christian minister and people believe her because she slaps the name of God on something and calls it biblical and it's not so we're going to finish up and I'm going to finish reading this what she says she says I often feel like we are in the middle of another reformation in a 500 year cycle John Calvin and Martin Luther had no idea they were in the middle of a reformation But they knew that church structures were breaking down, new forms of communication were emerging, new scientific discoveries were being made, new kinds of authorities and states and economic systems arising, all like this moment in time. This creates a spiritual crisis and a spiritual flexibility. Okay, so just for a little bit of history for you guys who probably don't know this, which I didn't know. I've always known the name John Calvin and Martin Luther, but I didn't really, to be honest, care to do much reading on them because it was just okay I was I was a lazy Christian to be super super blunt I was very lazy and I didn't care um so yes John Calvin and Martin Luther did help with the reformation but what they were doing was they were realizing that their churches and that the um specifically the Catholic Church but the churches were going away from scripture that they were veering off of scripture and that they were coming up with all sorts of crazy ideas very similar to the new apostolic reformation that's going on where they are taking little bits and pieces of scripture and then completely voiding the rest kind of like what andy stanley's basically been doing lately where he's saying all we need is the new testament we don't need the old testament which is not truth not factual because if that was the case then god would not have had the new testament put in so or the Old Testament put in. So the Old Testament is obviously just as prevalent as the New Testament and is absolutely needed. And we do need to be spending our time in both Old and New Testament. So there was new uh, new forms of communication emerging and there was new scientific discoveries being made and there were new kinds of authorities and states and economic systems arising. Yeah, but that does not change the fact that scripture is 
infallible. That means that scripture from the beginning of time to now is still just as relevant. The people and the places may change, but that does not mean that scripture changes. And so what she's saying here is that we're at a point where we now need to look at scripture differently and we need to make it work for our time and for our time period because we are more scientifically advanced than they were then. And we are more advanced whenever it comes to how we communicate with people. And that church structures were breaking down. Well, yeah, because they weren't following Christ. They were following their own examples of what they thought was Christ, but it was not the biblical, the actual Christ. If she did anything like what she's supposed to do to be theology, that's literally the study of God. I don't think she's done a study of God whatsoever. And maybe she did, and then she decided, well, that's not good enough for me. But I can't speak for her myself, obviously, because I don't even know her, and I don't really want to. But you would not come up with this sort of a, this sort of answer if you actually knew who God was. She says Christianity is at something of a turning point. But I think that this questioning and this reaching is even bigger than Christianity. It reaches into many religious traditions. Okay, barf on that. You need to always scratch that sort of thing out because it does not matter about any other religious traditions because not all religions lead to the same answer. So that doesn't matter. This wrestling with climate change and wrestling with the levels of violence in our world, wrestling with authoritarianism, And the intraceable character of gender oppression. It's forcing communities within all religions to say something is horribly wrong here. It's a spiritual crisis. Many non-religious people feel it too. We need a new way entirely to think about what it means to be a human being and what the purpose of our lives is. For me, this moment feels apocalyptic and is something new and if something new is struggling to be born. Okay, so basically, if you look at anything that she just said, you will see so... Mm, I'm trying to think of nice ways to phrase certain things because I don't actually want to offend people, but I want you to understand what the gospel is saying. Um so basically she's saying that, you know, all within all religions, we're all saying something is horribly wrong here. Well, yeah, because naturally we have a disgusting human nature that we have to wrestle with, right? And God has to turn our eyes towards him and turn our hearts towards him so that we can understand just how deprived and just how messed up we are. So yeah, we're all from the moment that we start breathing, realizing something is horribly wrong here because it's us. We're what's horribly wrong. Um, it's, it is a spiritual crisis, as she says. I get that. But it's only for ourselves, really. Like, we are what is wrong. It is not the spiritual crisis is the Bible. It's not that Jesus was resurrected and somehow that's now a spiritual crisis. No. And many non-religious people feel it, too. Yet again, because we're all humans. 
when she says, we need a new way entirely to think about what it means to be a human being. No, we don't. We do not. If you would just read your Bible, it will tell you exactly what you are as a human being. And just general, without God, without Jesus, anything like that, we are so messed up. And we are in absolute and desperate need of a Savior. That has never changed. From the time that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden all the way to now, nothing has changed with humans. We may have become more advanced with the things around us, but us ourselves, we are the same. We are descendants of Adam, which means that we have his sin nature impressed upon us. And that is us. That is our natural nature. And what the purpose of our lives is, she says. We need to try and figure out what the purpose of our lives is. Well, I'm pretty sure, yet again, if you'd go to scripture, you'd probably understand that. It's like this, it's weird how the common thread through all of this is like, if you would just go read your Bible. And like read all of it. Don't just pick and choose what you'd like to read. Don't read the verses that make you feel good. Read all of it. So he then asks, so but like all of this stuff that she's answering, she said like 2,000 years ago. So like all, all this stuff happened 2,000 years ago. And she said, yes. Something was struggling to be born on that first Easter. What? She said, at first, it burst forth in ways that changed the world forever. Okay, that's factual. Today, I feel that spiritual ground around us shaking again. The structures of religion as we know it have come up bankrupt and are collapsing. What will emerge? That is for our children and our children's children to envision and build. So that's the last of her comments. Um, And here's just the last of my comments on this, of how she did not necessarily go out with a bang and things did not get better. If anything, this entire interview just went worse and worse and worse. Um, Today, I feel that spiritual ground around us shaking again. Okay, well, that's feelings-based, so stop basing everything that you live your life off of on feelings. And that's for every person. All of us do it. We all want to base it off of our intuition, off of our gut feeling. And sometimes, I will say, sometimes our gut feeling, yes, is accurate, but I'm not going to base my entire life off of that. And sometimes, sometimes God does use the Holy Spirit in a manner where he does use your feelings to get you from one thing to another. Yeah, he does do that. But not all the time. What he does want you to use is, again, your Bible. He wants you to use your Bible. It's that simple. And guys, we are so blessed in this country where we can have, I have like 15 Bibles in my entire house. Excuse my dog as she shakes in the background because she decides that she wants to be next to mom. But I have like 15 Bibles in my house and those are, yes, mine and my husband's, but still we are so blessed where we have 15. There are some people who don't even have one and they are not allowed to have one. They are banned from ever even seeing one. So We need to not act like we are these entitled people and like we know everything because we have a Bible that's collecting dust on our shelves. No, we need to dust that Bible off. We need to actually use it. We need to read it. We need to study it. She says, the structures of religion as we know it have come up bankrupt and are collapsing. Um, Okay, so here's my problem with that. It's not the structure 
of the Bible that's coming up bankrupt. It's not the structure that God put in place. It's when we take what he has laid out, what he has said, this is how it should be. This is what it must be. And we have contorted it. When we have started saying that it's okay that a household is not ran by a man and a woman. It's okay that it's two men or two women. When we say that it's okay that the Bible has been taken out of our school because we don't necessarily need it there because this is we're learning about history. Whenever we're actually con- completely changing our history books to suit our own needs, So then God's not even mentioned at all. You don't even understand why some of the things that happened in our nation actually happened because they were fighting for a biblical truth. So we start losing that. When we start saying that um, God doesn't have to be in our government, that it's okay that we're only ran by um, just the people and just our our finite minds, then yes, we're going to have a problem. It is not the structures of God that are coming up bankrupt and are collapsing. It's us putting ourselves, putting our our disgusting, greasy fingers in all of his stuff and then saying, mm, I'm going to make this more about me and what makes me feel better. That's when we start coming up bankrupt because we're trying to put all of our money in a bank that has no money and has nothing that can fund you, has nothing that can actually allow you to become prosperous because we're not trying to become prosperous with our finances. What we're trying to become prosperous with is our worship of God. And we can't have that if we are not worshiping the right God. If we're not putting our money in the correct bank, which is God's, we're going to come bankrupt. Yes. I want to point out that she's also saying that when she says this, that is for our children and our children's children to envision and build. Yes and no, but we can do it right if we teach our children and our children's children to go to scripture and to build their life, to build their ministry, to build their job, to build their home on scripture alone, then things will change. Yeah, we're going to see a huge change if that ever happens. And lastly, I'd like to say that nowhere in any of those last statements was any part of the Trinity mentioned. Nowhere. Christianity was mentioned. But nowhere was God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit ever mentioned in any of that. It was very, very person-centered. And that's what's wrong with our world. So... That's all that I have with this one. I mean, I have a lot more that I would like to say and a lot more that I would like to present to you guys, but I'm hoping that this will help you to open your minds and see that sometimes when we read things, just because it comes from someone who is a president of the Union Theological Seminary does not mean that it's one that we need to be listening to or not one that we need to actually be holding so tightly. Because if it is not the scripture that you're holding tightly to, then you're holding on to a false doctrine. You're holding on to a false gospel. So take the time. Do your research. Like I said, I could read this and figure out that I don't want to listen to anything she has to say ever. So no, I'm not going to read her book. I'm not going to listen to anything that she ever has to say. But it's going to be a great example of where our, our world is headed. And honestly, where it's at. 
So I hope that you enjoyed this and I hope that you were able to follow along. And again, I'll have more information in my, uh, my episode notes so that you can actually read the article for yourself, but you can also see the verses for yourself as well. Um, I ask that you will please leave a review like this on whatever platform you listen to because it's very, very helpful for me. And I do want to say a big congratulations to Miss Molly for winning the giveaway that we had on Easter. Um, I'm very excited for her to receive her package and for hopefully for her to share some of it so that you guys can see some of the great uh, some of the great things that you guys can also be using to benefit your study time as well. Um, This is Madison Sanderson, and I just pray that you will go and praise God from whom all blessings flow.